Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have this kind of running um, uh, pattern of self-denial in my own life. And it, and it goes a little something like this. And it's just completely falling apart this year. Um, but the pattern of self-denial is this. Is, is, it's that I'm cool with birthdays. I'm not cool with birthdays. My own. I pretend I am. I, 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 I act like I am. Uh, but in a month, a month from tomorrow, not to put too fine a point on it, um, I have a big one coming up. 50. I'm going to turn 50. And I've had this joke. Thank you for the whistle. Um, I've had this joke going since I turned 40. I turned 40 in a hospital room. Um, and the joke is, you know, when I turn 40, when I turn 41, when I turn 42, so on. Uh, the joke has been, oh, it's the halfway point. But man, 50, it's got to be the halfway point, at least, right? Um, and so, so it's coming up, and I find myself thinking about it a lot. And I find myself thinking about uh, just sort of where I've been. Uh, and how the Lord has, has stewarded and cared for my life and my family over the years. And so much gratitude. And as we start looking at this letter, I want to invite you uh, to, to consider the, the, the road that you've walked spiritually. Uh, if, you, if you have been a Christian for a year, if, if, you have, if you're just in the... In the in the headwaters of, of exploring faith and you're not even sure what, what it is that you believe, or if you're somebody who's, who's been following the Lord for, for five decades, I want to invite you to just kind of think about uh, the journey of your life over time and, and look for places where you've seen the Lord grow you and shape you and, and tend to you and care for you. Uh, what I want to do is I want to provide today kind of a high flyover of this epistle to kind of help us find, find it on the map and find ourselves in it. And I wanted to frame it that way of, of, of kind of finding ourselves at the point in our lives where we are. Uh, it may not be where we want to be, but it's where the Lord has us right now. So this letter starts off with Peter identifying himself as the author. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the first thing that we learn. Later in 5.1, he claims to be an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. And so there's, there's really little de debate about the authorship of this letter, that it, that it comes from Jesus' friend and disciple, Simon Peter, the one that we talked about last week. Um, he makes a reference here in terms of finding out where is he writing from. In, in 5.13, he makes a reference to Babylon. Uh, he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. What he's doing is he's, is he's sending these greetings, and, and this is a greeting from somebody who's with him. 
And the word Babylon here is really likely a reference to Rome itself. And so, so what we have here is that Peter, it's, it's Simon Peter writing from Rome. Uh, and when he wrote this letter, historians kind of date this letter to the era of Nero. Uh, Nero's rule in Rome, which was from 54 AD to 68 AD. I promise all these dates and stuff is relevant. We're going to get to it in a second. Um, but 54 to 68 AD was, was when Nero reigned. The letter deals a lot with persecution and enduring persecution and, and focusing on what it means to stay faithful to Christ in the face of suffering at the hands of persecutors. And so that, that historians will kind of date this letter to kind of around 62 to 63 AD because 64 AD was Nero's infamous persecution of the Christians in Rome. And so this, this letter is sort of ramping up. The writing is on the wall. The persecution is beginning. And Peter is writing to these believers and saying, it's, it's bad and it's probably going to get worse. Here's what it looks like to be faithful. But the other thing that that means then is if this was written 62-63 AD, it means that Peter is writing roughly 30 years after Jesus resurrection. And that got me spinning this week. Now, I am not going to presume to compare my spiritual vitality or my spiritual journey to that of Simon Peter's. Different people, different experiences, different proximity to Jesus. So I do not see, I'm about to say things and I'm giving you disclaimer after disclaimer, I I don't see us as equals. But the math math of it just has me it has my attention because Peter wrote this letter he would have written this letter after he'd been a follower of Jesus for about 30 to 35 years which is how long I've been a follower of Jesus so I've been thinking about that I've been thinking about what does it look like to follow the Lord for 30 to 35 years and to have this account here because roughly the same amount of time between Peter's denial of Christ and his writing this letter is the same amount of time between when I first believed in Jesus and now. And so it makes the letter strangely personal to me when I read it. And at this point, again, you may be starting to roll your eyes and say, is the pastor really going to spend the sermon comparing his spiritual journey to the Apostle Peter's? I'm going to move on in a minute. But here's the thing. One of the great gifts that we have when it comes to Simon Peter is that we know things about him. We know things about his life. We know things that he did. We know know what he was like when he was a new believer, when he was a young believer, probably in his 20s or 30s. We know that he had a temper, right? We know that he was a person who really led with his heart. We know that he could be really brave, And then he could also be really blind to what was happening around him. We know that he thought that his devotion to Jesus when he was young was was impenetrable, only then to discover that it wasn't. And yet when we read this letter, 1 Peter, we're reading the words of a man writing under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit who has walked a road. He has lived the life that Christ called him to back when they first met, and it was this life of being a fisher of men. And now he finds himself 
in Rome, in a place that has become increasingly more and more hostile to Christians, and believers across the empire are having to wrestle with the question of what what will come of my faith in the face of persecution. And so think of it, you've got Simon Peter, who years before, 30 to 35 years before, tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. And then when Jesus went to the cross, denied knowing him. And now he finds himself caring for people who are wrestling through a crisis of faith in the face of suffering. And this is the letter that he gives them. And it's the theme of the letter. In fact, the ESV Study Bible describes the theme of this letter like this. It says, those who persevere in faith while suffering persecution should be full of hope. For they will certainly enjoy end time salvation since they are already enjoying God's saving promises here and now through the death and the resurrection of Christ. Several times in this letter, Peter encourages his readers to endure suffering and persecution by giving themselves entirely to God. He does it in 1, 6, and 7, 2, 18 to 20, 3, 9, 3, 13 to 17, 4, 1 to 4, 4, 12 to 19, and 5, 9. He, this is a theme that comes through where he says, endure suffering and persecution by giving yourself entirely to the one who knows you and keeps you and has called you. They're to turn to God in times of distress, believing that the Lord will be the one to take care of them, and that when this life is over, they will know the lasting joy and peace of being united to him forever. So it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that stand as the paradigm for the life of the Christian. Just as Christ suffered and then entered into glory, so to his followers will suffer in this life, in this world you will have trouble, and then we will be exalted with him forever. That's the trajectory, that's the arc of the life of the Christian. And so here he's writing about it in the context of persecution at the hands of Rome, but it's also a more general statement about hardship in this life. Whether it's persecution or it's vocational distress or it's relational distress or emotional distress or physical distress, that there's, there's a reality for the believer that we're in this life and we're walking through and it's going to be hard and there's a lot of things that are coming for us that we can't stop. And yet, it follows the pattern of our Lord who suffered and then was exalted eternally. And we suffer in this life, and then we're united with him forever, and that's our story. If, you've, if you're somebody who has walked with Jesus for, for a few decades, I wonder how differently you think of suffering now, as opposed to when you first believed. What has Jesus taught you about that? What has life taught you about it? What has suffering taught you? What has pride taught you and the dismantling of pride that comes with suffering. For me, I think one of the things that I've learned is is that we're not static beings. We change. We grow. 
We see life in new and different ways the older we get. We recognize things in ourselves that we just couldn't see when we were younger. We recognize fears and hurts, patterns of sin, patterns of ignorance. And life has this way of dealing with us that can either humble us or it can harden us. And that usually comes by how we respond to the hardship and suffering that comes our way. Sometimes hardship and suffering comes our way and our response is to calcify. Is to say, well, I'm never going to let that happen again. And the way I'm never going to let that happen again is I'm going to build a perimeter around myself that just won't let that stuff touch me anymore. Do you pull away from Christ and protect? Or do you lean into him? When it comes to suffering and pain and the difficulties of this life, the problem is we're just really not given a choice. <laughs> they, they come for us all. And so the question is, who is Christ going to be to you when those things come? Who will we be to him? Will we be followers? Or will we kill the poet inside and resolve to never let anything like that ever get close ever again? The fact that we're reading a letter that opens Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's 30 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is miraculous. It's a statement about the preserving grace of God. And it's miraculous because of the journey that we know it implies for this apostle. It gives me a lot of hope when I think about where I am now, where I've been, where I'm going. So let's talk about the letter and its readers uh, a little bit and its, and its uh, distribution, <laughs> if you will. Again, this, we're kind of finding this letter and just talking about how the New Testament happened, uh, really, in a lot of ways. So, so the rest of these opening two verses, they set the stage for what's to come. Peter addresses the letter to Christians who are dispersed, spread out, uh, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We have a map here of this where you can see kind of where they are, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia. You see them there. Um, these, these are all provinces that have been impacted by Greco-Roman culture. They're firmly under Roman control and have been uh, since mid-first century B.C. Uh, so 50 years before the birth of Christ, they were under Roman control. Culture was being shaped there. Um, the order in which these regions are named probably designates the route that Silvanus, who comes up in chapter 5, who was Peter's courier, uh, would likely take this letter and deliver it to these different churches, that he would move from place to place to place. It gives us an interesting look, kind of under the hood, concerning how Peter's and really the Apostle Paul's epistles made their way around to the churches. They were usually couriers. In a lot of these letters, they're named Remember when we studied Philemon and Colossians, we, we learned about Tychicus and uh, Onesimus who were delivering these letters to the churches, that they would be brought, they would be read, they might be copied, and then they would go to the next place and they'd be read again. And that's how these letters made their way around. So who was receiving the, this particular letter from, from Peter? Um, this is an interesting note because if you remember in, in one of the epistles that Paul wrote, he talks about this confrontation that he has with Peter, where Peter seems to be favoring the Jews 
at the expense of the Gentiles, and Paul calls him out very publicly about it. The recipients of this letter, 1 Peter, are primarily Gentiles. So Peter's writing this letter to the people that he once slighted in that journey of his. And you see this in the references. In, in, in 114, he refers to their former ignorance. That's not a put down. It's just that they don't know uh, the story of the covenant of God. Uh, in, in 118, he talks about the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, that they lack this foundation of understanding. Uh, it suggests that there's this pagan past that just wouldn't fit with Jewish readers. And then he talks about the lifestyle of the readers in four, uh, three to four, uh, and it fits more with a Gentile lifestyle than a Jewish lifestyle. Now, undoubtedly, there were Jewish readers and Christians in these churches because we learn about that in Acts 2 when it talks about who was gathered there when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Cappadocia, Pontus, or Pontus, and Asia were all named there. Um, he, he talks about them as exiles. He probably doesn't mean literal exiles, but spiritual exiles, people who are living lives in such a way where they are very, very aware that they're waiting for their heavenly inheritance. And the tone of the letter is, is very urgent. In fact, Peter includes 30 imperatives in this letter, which averages out to about one command for every three verses. So there's a tone uh, in this letter. And he uses like very vivid imagery and figurative language. At times, the letter sounds like an apocalyptic book as he kind of slides back and forth between the riches that are ours in Christ and then the duties that are also ours in Christ as the recipients of his grace living in a hostile world. And then we look under the hood of what kind of a hostile world it is. And that brings us to the infamous Nero. History casts this dark cloud over Nero, rightly, uh, who blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. So you have Peter writing in Rome to a largely Gentile audience about persecution that is happening under Nero. Uh, there's this old book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'm sure many of you have heard of this. It's this, it's this collection of the accounts of mar Christian martyrs down through the ages and how they were persecuted and how they died. And it's sort of this record of, of their, their sacrifice. And, and one of the things that Fox's Book of Martyrs has done uh, which is also something that was a consequence of, of Nero's persecution, is in compiling story after story after story of people who suffered and died for their faith. It didn't weaken Christianity, but had this strange effect of strengthening Christians, of bolstering their faith of giving them a perspective. And Nero's persecution is the same way. And Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about Nero and his rule and his reign. And so I'm just going to read part of what it, it says. This is, from, this is from that book. He says, this, this monarch, Nero, reigned for the space of five years with tolerable credit to himself, but then gave way to the greatest extravagancy of temper and to the most atrocious barbarities. Among other diabolical whims, he ordered that the city of Rome should be set on fire, 
which order was executed by his officers, guards, and servants. And while the imperial city was in flames, he went up to the tower of Massinaeus and played upon his harp and sung the song of the burning of Troy and openly declared that he, quote, wished the ruin of all things before his death. If he couldn't have it, nobody could. Several thousands perished in the flames, were smothered in the smoke, or buried beneath the ruins. This dreadful conflagration continued nine days when Nero, finding that his conduct was greatly blamed and a severe odium cast upon him, determined to lay the whole upon the Christians at once to excuse himself and have an opportunity of glutting his sight with new cruelties. Nero even refined upon cruelty and contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some dressed in shirts made stiff with wax, fixed to axle trees, and set on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate them. This persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire, but it rather increased than diminished the spirit of Christianity. In the course of it, St. Paul and St. Peter were martyred. So historical accounts vary in terms of like specific dates and, and, and details. But what's clear is that the churches to whom Peter is writing are filled with people who are suffering persecution. And many of whom are dying at the hands of Roman decree. And, and what's particularly volatile about this persecution is it wasn't an official state-sanctioned empire-wide persecution. Instead, it was a persecution that would, that would be dormant, and then it would flare up, and then it would be dormant again. And it was usually local, the persecution, which was even more insidious because what it meant was for these Christians, the persecution against them would often arise from within their own community aimed at them. And so they lived with this constant threat that it was always possible for the life of a believer in Rome to just be extinguished in a moment. And so Peter's writing to people for whom it costs something to follow Jesus. To these Christians... Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What I want to conclude with is, is a comfort to we who suffer. Because what Peter does here is he opens his letter with this unflinching truth that can be hard to accept, hard to accept, but even harder to escape from if we believe in a God who is sovereign. If you believe in a God who is sovereign, this may be hard to accept, but it's impossible to get away from, and it's this. God knows the suffering you endure. He's not surprised by any of it. He knows it. In fact, Peter uses this uncomfortable word, foreknowledge. Show of hands if you wish the word foreknowledge didn't appear. No, you don't have to show your hands for that. 
But he uses the word foreknowledge to talk about the trials that they're enduring. What's he saying? If what we think he's saying is he's saying, yeah, God knew the sufferings that you would face, full stop. It's more than that. Because he didn't just know the sufferings they would face. He knew who they would be when they face those sufferings. And that is where the hope is. See, it isn't just that God foreknew the sufferings they'd face. He foreknew that they would face those trials as his people. As his people. He decreed that they would move through this hard world as people who belong to him. As people who were loved and who were kept since before the foundation of the world. He calls them the elect. And he's saying the spirit of the Lord is present with you in this. Sanctifying you in this. Consider the implications of this. Because look, it is one thing to be alone in this world. And to have some hero show up at the last minute just before the gallows and save your life and get you out of there. That's one thing. But it is another thing entirely. Another kind of comfort entirely to know you were never alone. You were never alone. That your Savior has been with you the entire time. And he's been with you Possessing both the plan and the power to deliver you from evil forever. That's what he's saying about the foreknowledge of God. In the face of all the hardship and suffering that comes in this life, the Lord has always been with his people. He's always been with his people. And he's given us his spirit and he's called us to follow him. And in this life, he cleanses us from our sin And he makes us more like him by his spirit. Sorrow and suffering are coming for you. But you're not alone. You're never alone. You've been on the mind of God since the beginning. Not as somebody who has managed to impress him. But as somebody who is loved by him just because he loves you. Remember who's writing these words. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter, I do not know the man. Where else can I go? You alone have the words of life. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You crucified, may it never be. Get behind me, Satan. Him. That's who's writing these words. Peter doesn't talk to us as a professor explaining some theory. He's writing as somebody whose entire life now has been wrapped up in the grace that he proclaims. In the face of public failure, he speaks as one who has come to understand that this life is a vapor compared to the innumerable glories that await the children of God. It's why he closes this letter with the encouragement This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I don't know what your suffering and sorrow is. I know some of you, I know what it is because we talk. And I don't know what's coming for you. I don't know what's coming for me. But I know that when God looks at us, he knows it all. And one of the things that we're going to learn in this letter is that in the suffering and the trials and the persecutions and the pain, 
is that it's not a matter of God showing up at some point, but it's a matter of him having been with us the entire time and having the plan and the power to redeem us and deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the information that we have about the life of the author, the road that he walked with you, who he was when he was a young believer, who he is when we come to this place where he's near his end. Lord, I ask that you would help us to develop over time a long view of your faithfulness, that we would not measure your faithfulness to us based on what you've done for us lately, but that you would even give us eyes to see when we think about your faithfulness to us, that you would give us eyes to see the story of Simon Peter as part of the evidence of your faithfulness to us, that you would give us eyes to regard the exodus, uh, the the, the story of, of the rising of Israel and your promise to keep and preserve a people as your kingdom forever and ever, that you would give us a long view of what you've already been doing, that we would remember as we read in the Psalms your works of old. And if we can't see your faithfulness in our own lives now, that we would appeal to the faithfulness that you've demonstrate to, demonstrated to others. And uh, Lord, transform us with your word as we study this letter. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.